0: Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. In 1831, Alexis de Tocqueville began his travels throughout America and diligently researched American laws, mores, and political institutions and was most struck by the general equality of condition among the people. This observation unfortunately could not be further from the observations of the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, Professor Philip Alston who toured this country in December 2017. Professor Alston found, conversely, a striking contrast between private wealth and public squalor. According to the World Income Inequality Database, the US has the highest GINI coefficient amongst rich countries and is geared to become the most unequal nation in the world. According to the Stanford Center on Poverty and Inequality, wage inequality and wealth concentration has substantially increased in the past three decades. A CEO in 1965 made on average 24 times a regular production worker. In 2009, this gap widened to 185 and is only increasing. The U.S. lags behind other rich countries in terms of public health and is ranked 36th in the world in terms of access to clean water and sanitation. In some areas of the U.S., there is an incidence of parasitic infections that are otherwise only seen in the least developed countries. We also have one of the highest rates of infant mortality in the world, on a national level almost three times higher than Finland, which has the lowest. However, these averages don't tell the full picture. Amongst wealthy Americans, the infant mortality rate is the same rate as in Finland, but poorer Americans have the same infant mortality rate as some of the least developed countries. If Mississippi were a country, its infant mortality rate would be comparable to Botswana's. Poverty and inequality are inextricably linked both the political choices that we have made and with political impetus, both can be remedied. On March 28, 2018, I discussed with Professor Alston the findings of his country report in the U.S., which he will be presenting to the U.N. Human Rights Council in Geneva this June. Welcome to Gravity, Philip. Thank you. There appears to be a myth that because America is a rich country, the poor, even the extremely poor in America, are nevertheless much better off than the poor in the least developed countries or in any other country. Have you found this to be true? How has America compared with the other countries you have assessed in your capacity as special rapporteur for extreme poverty and human rights?
1: I guess the first answer is that um, I don't normally do comparisons because the thing is that a country has to live up to its potential So if you have a country that is very poor, you can only expect it to do so much. Whereas if you have a country that's very rich, you can expect a lot more of it. Uh, But it's true nonetheless that in the United States, according to uh, Angus Deaton, for example, who's a Nobel Prize winner, uh, he estimated that there are something like five million people living in the sort of poverty that would be found in a uh, poor developing country. Um, and that's certainly consistent with my own observations traveling around the country.
0: And it seems your travels around the country were travels essentially between two countries, um, and your report is as much a report on inequality as it is on poverty.
1: Yes. um, I avoided the um, old phrase of a tale of two cities or two countries, but uh, it's certainly true that in a place like Los Angeles, for example, where you are in Skid Row, you can see and smell and feel uh, the richest part of the city, which is just across the uh, street, basically. Uh, And so the contrasts between uh, people living in great poverty and people living in what we know to be extremely comfortable wealth um, are pretty uh, stark in the United States.
0: Now, I'd just like to backtrack a bit and discuss the methodology behind your report. What places did you visit and why were they specifically chosen? What was the prevalent topic of submissions and your conversations with people? And was there a disparity between the main topic of conversation between government representatives and the people that you were speaking with?
1: Well, in preparing for the visit, uh, basically I um have a period of 12 days available to me i can uh, in principle go wherever i like in the country but i had to start and end in washington dc which is the diplomatic arrangement that governments have with the un so i then had to work out what i could do in the space of that time i called for submissions from a great range of civil society organizations and i spoke to many experts And as you would expect, um, a great array of issues and areas were identified for me. Um, And indeed, once I started my visit, I began to get emails from people saying, I can't believe you went to X when things are so much worse in my town. You should come here and I'll show you the horrors. Um, but I tried to get some sort of geographical spread. I tried to uh, capture some of what I thought were the most important issues, and I have to say I was also uh, interested in trying to get some sort of racial balance. I didn't want to fall into the trap of poverty being black uh, and therefore just visiting certain areas which are predominantly African-American. So I ended up going then from basically starting in DC, uh, flying across to California, to LA and San Francisco, then back to Alabama, uh, up very briefly to Georgia, then over to Puerto Rico, because this was of course in the wake of the hurricane. uh, And then to West Virginia before going back to Washington, DC.
0: When you spoke with government representatives across the country or across the various levels of government and people, I know that you did interviews on the street and so forth. Was there a disparity between the two different mindsets and the prevalent topics of conversation?
1: Well, I think it's uh, not difficult as a government official to abstract yourself from the problems. Obviously, if you're speaking to people on the street, they've got very particular issues they want to talk about. Uh, They want shelter. They want water. They want food. They want access to a toilet. Um, people in government either tend to say well that's not my responsibility uh, or to take the very long view and say well yeah we're working on that but what we need is growth or getting more people out to work that's going to solve all these problems and so the conversations are almost unavoidably at very different levels.
0: you note that the prevalence of extreme inequality in this rich country is essentially a political choice. And I couldn't agree more. I think when we decide to cut welfare and reduce tax, we're essentially prioritizing one sector of our community. And I think the policy that really highlights this, that you address directly in your report, and we've actually um, also done an earlier podcast on this, is the choice to criminalize homelessness, which is essentially the criminalization of compulsion um, and bound to be violated. Now, these policies are defended ostensibly by frugality, but um, sometimes they cost taxpayers more. Uh, What are some other policies that you've seen that support the rich and entrench poverty and maybe, rather than the result of abstemious fiscal directives, an overt political choice to entrench people in poverty in this country?
1: Well, you've mentioned the approach to homelessness, Um, that's the most obvious um, in the sense that if you um, fine people um, and end up putting them in prison, you actually exacerbate their situation very significantly while at the same time doing nothing about the underlying causes. So as soon as they get back out on the street they're actually much worse off because they've got a criminal conviction, uh, it's harder for them to get any housing that they might otherwise have been eligible for and so on. Uh, and that just then rebounds onto the public uh, budget once again. Uh, but even in a range of other areas, um, I focused particularly I think on criminal justice issues And there you've got, uh, because of the radical budget cuts in many states, there's an increasing privatization of parts of the criminal justice system. So the state is saving itself uh, some money, uh, but in fact, it's generating much higher costs uh, generally, uh, certainly to the community. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of the... bail bond system, uh, which uh, basically uh, takes the pressure off the courts from having to decide who presents a real risk and who doesn't, and they can simply prescribe a fairly high level of bail, which wealthy people like me can pay immediately, uh, but poor people have no chance of paying, and so they're put in the hands then of bail bond corporations uh, eventually, they are going to uh, be highly unlikely to be unable to pay uh, if there's a default. Uh, similarly, there are private arrangements for putting people on to probation. In other words, rather than sentencing them to prison, they're given probation. But that's immediately turned over to a private company, uh, which charges the – I'd say the victim is the right word um, – for each visit to the probation officer might prescribe certain tests and other things that need to be purchased, and so you're taking someone who often has been arrested for what we might think of as an economic crime uh, further impoverishing them and making it much more likely that they will then be a charge on the uh, public budget in some other ways because they just can't afford to make a living
0: and this prevalent theme of the justice report on Ferguson and you also noted that in your report. You noted in your report and I'm quoting from it now that the criminal justice system is effectively a system for keeping the poor in poverty while generating revenue to fund the criminal system and other programs. So essentially we are not only denying people economic rights in this country, we seem to be effectively denying constitutional rights of due process and equal protection.
1: Yes, uh, but as I also said in the report, it's a sort of win-win situation for the wealthy because they take it off the uh, budget, their taxes go down, uh, and the burden of these sort of rather basic functions is transferred over, the financial burden transferred over to the uh, poor uh, and the middle classes who simply can't afford it but have to somehow come up with the money.
0: That the cuts to welfare currently, and actually even previously under Reagan and more specifically under Clinton, who ossified the system, are made against an illusory emphasis on employment um, when there's a dearth of gainful employment, and against this backdrop of caricatured narratives of the rich and the poor, with this pejorative narrative of the poor as ironically greedy and lazy and the rich as industrious. How entrenched are these narratives, in particular with respect to our legislators and amongst the poor, have they internalized these narratives? To what extent do these narratives prevent meaningful policies to eradicate poverty in this country?
1: One of the ironies um, I mentioned in my report, but not in great detail, is that um, Speaker Paul Ryan um, commissioned, basically, and welcomed very warmly. A commission on evidence-based decision-making and the basic idea of this was that instead of just enacting laws that reflect ideology or prejudices or whatever there would be careful analysis undertaken which would provide evidence pointing to the likely success of a given legislative strategy. Mm -hmm. That um, certainly certainly doesn't happen these days in relation to the problem of those living in poverty. Instead, what you've got is a very polarized uh, debate, uh, particularly on the part of conservatives who paint uh, all, of the, all of those living in poverty with a single brush. Uh, they are all lazy. They could or should all be on, um, in employment and off any sort of government assistance And that's simply not right. Um, An easy example, uh, which I don't think people would have difficulty comprehending, uh, is Medicare uh, or Medicaid. Um, If you're unemployed, you're not going to be able to afford medical assistance. That, in turn, is going to make it much harder for you to get a job. You'll be sick. uh, You'll suffer from ailments that are not being cured you won't have access to dental care, you'll have smelly teeth and so on, um, and your prospects on the job market are diminished very significantly. Now the conservative line would be, we need to cut all access to medical care uh, so that people can buy it themselves. They won't just take it for granted, they'll go out and get a job, and then they'll be able to afford to purchase healthcare for themselves. But of course, the reality is that they can't afford health care even often when they work full-time in some of the very low-paying jobs that are actually available. And moreover, uh, a very significant proportion of those who are actually on welfare um, have no real option. They're suffering from a disability. They're suffering from nervous uh, problems, from trauma, whatever it might be. Uh, and they can't just be pushed out into a job. You asked whether um, the poor themselves have internalized those narratives. I think, again, one of the striking things about the United States is the extent to which welfare has been stigmatized. Uh, In other words, it's considered shameful uh, to be on welfare and so I came across quite a lot of evidence that people really don't apply for it unless they're absolutely desperate. And of course, governments do their best to add to that stigma. They expose people. You've got to uh, line up. You've got to fill in all sorts of forms. You've got to use a different credit card or whatever if you've got food stamps. Um, and the idea precisely is to embarrass those people uh, in major Uh, contrast to what happens in Western Europe, for example, where it's assumed that access to welfare, if you're down, uh, is a right of citizenship and there isn't the same sort of shame attached to it.
0: Yeah, I think that's the crux of it. And one thing that I thought was very pivotal in your report is how you spun the narrative around. You noted that uh, quite astutely that there are a lot of people that are, now they're not called food stamps. I believe that it's called the S- uh, Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program. But in any case, this is the EBT card that you get specifically for food. But quite a number of people using SNAP are actually in employment, but they can't survive on employment. And you said that this was effectively a corporate subsidy, which it is.
1: <laughs> yes, a lot of people um, are uh, find that Uh, companies, particularly in the retail sector, but not only, um, move their hours around in order to ensure that they don't qualify as full-time employees and then don't get any benefits. But they still manage to give them enough hours so that in some weeks they might really work full-time and they might be able to just manage on that or might not But then the following week, they'll be reduced to 12, 15 hours uh, to make absolutely clear that they don't have any entitlement to benefits. And then, of course, they're back below the poverty line. Um, Walmart is one corporation which uh, is certainly playing this sort of game, but there are a number of others as well.
0: I just want to go back to one thing that you said before about healthcare: how it's very hard to get a job when you don't have uh, health assistance to begin with. And, of course, everyone is allergic to public health care, it seems, although, thankfully, one of the uh, fortunate things about Trump getting into power is that he has actually propelled the pendulum the other way, and there are moves to have single-payer systems in California and New York, but we'll see how that goes. Um, mm. but, but one thing that struck me about your report was you went to Alabama and you found several counties that have absolutely no infrastructure for sanitation. I mean, in one of the most developed countries in the world. Now, um, this leads to an incidence of parasitic infection, which is then neglected. And the symptoms of this are fatigue and impaired cognitive function, which obviously would impact education and gainful employment. So to what extent did you find that inadequate health care was both a symptom and a cause of poverty in this country?
1: Well, I think it's, uh, I think it's both. Uh, as you suggest, um, it really is a vicious circle um, that if you um, are poor, you can't afford health care. Uh, and if you are poor, you're not going to get healthcare because it's being made increasingly difficult to get access to it uh, except in really chronic uh, circumstances. Uh, I mean, I'd go back. Uh, I don't want to focus too narrowly on just one little area, but I I certainly was struck by it. Um, The question of dental care, um, teeth degenerate, pretty quickly uh, if they don't have any care. Uh, I think we all know how painful uh, dental pain can be. Um, But I came across a lot of people who had never really been able to get access to dental care. And what happens in those situations, apart from the fact that the teeth just deteriorate pretty rapidly, uh, is that when the pain reaches a sufficient threshold they will be admitted to the emergency room and the emergency room will arrange for an extraction. Uh, But of course, this is not the sort of dental care that's going to facilitate employment or even looking for employment. Um, And bad teeth really do render quite a few people uh, unattractive for a lot of jobs. So it's just a minor little window into something that we really don't think about and that the Major healthcare systems don't provide anywhere near adequately for.
0: Not to mention that if we had a public healthcare system, preventative care and very minor dental care, compared to our emergency dental care and extraction, would be less expensive.
1: Right. Right.
0: I noted in your report that it, that there are punitive policies against the poor. For instance, as you noted, with bail bonds, nearly seventy-five percent of people on remand are innocent because they're innocent until proven guilty, but they don't have the sufficient means for bail. There's also punitive welfare policies or child services policies. And now I'd like to discuss what are called Jane Crow laws, or the disproportionate incursion of child services into poor families, ironically separating well-meaning parents from their children based on the child's welfare. Um, how are families punished for being poor in this country? And how does this punishment entrench the poverty of the entire family?
1: Uh, well, I mean, I think that's uh, an excellent question. I, uh, just to digress um, for a moment, I have a colleague who teaches with me at New York University. And a number of years ago, he wrote a book called What's Wrong with Children's Rights? And it didn't have a question mark at the end. In other words, it was asserting that children's rights are bad. And I found this very puzzling because I've done a lot of work at the international level on children's rights, and they can play a very important part. But the explanation was simply that in the United States, his perception was that the rights of children are really only ever recognized and invoked in courts um, as a pretext for Taking the children out of the family, uh, so it's children's rights suddenly becomes the prelude to a uh, an essentially a punitive uh, policy uh, where you uh, claim that uh, poor people, in particular, because they don't have enough resources or because they've got into very bad habits linked to their poverty, often um, are not competent as parents, and so they have their children taken away from them. Uh, The constant emphasis on employment. um, You've got a very big gap then between uh, male um, unemployed and female unemployed. All too rarely are the males going to be giving primary care to the children. Um, But exactly the same standards are generally expected of both men and women when in fact particularly if you're a single woman heading up a household, uh, it's impossible to hold down a full-time job and look after children in situations where there's no access to childcare, where there's no medical care and no other uh, decent sort of assistance for them. Uh, So the cycle of poverty uh, is really entrenched in that sort of situation and single uh, single-mother households are particularly uh, affected.
0: And, of course, nobody asks the child what they would like, whether they want to be separated from their parents.
1: Right, right. Well, yes, that's that's true.
0: And the U.S. has not ratified the uh, um, Convention on the Rights of the Child.
1: Yes, it remains the only country in the world that has uh, refused to do that.
0: Mm. The arsenal of democracy. Um, So you astutely noted in your report that the political choice to contain people in extreme poverty and perpetuate this inequality in this country is supported by the effective lack of political participation of the poor who are effectively disenfranchised. And you note that they're disenfranchised both by overt policies as well as more insidious methods. And you also note that this political atrophy has really solidified um, a political apathy among the poor who've just given up on the system. Now, how are the poor effectively disenfranchised in this country and what is needed to bring them back into political participation in order to affect policy changes in their favour?
1: Well, uh, to start at the end, uh, my my view is that the responsibility of government uh, should be to enable as many people as possible to vote and that where you've got an extremely low turnout um, as you get generally in US elections, uh, that reflects uh, as badly upon the government as it does upon the people concerned. Uh, If you know that there are many people who are not voting, you should be asking yourself, why is this the case? And what can we do to uh, turn it around if you're serious about uh, really running a strong democracy? But instead, in the U.S., you've got uh, policies which I refer to as overt and covert disenfranchisement. Overt relates to the loss of your vote if you've been convicted of a felony. And in many states, it stays with you for life. In other states, it expires once you're released. But you also have to wipe out any debts that you have incurred to the government before you get your vote back. Um, and that affects a huge number of people who are released from prison. Um, they're then basically unable to vote despite be, having paid their penalty to society and being back on the streets as free people. Uh, you've then got the covert uh, efforts, um, which uh, consist of... Um, efforts to uh, demo- to raise the standards of identification that are required before you vote to make it more difficult to get that ID by moving departments of motor vehicles away from certain areas. Uh, the hours uh, where polling stations are kept open, the number of people who are staffing them, uh, all these things make a very big impact. Uh, the relatively well off, the middle classes as well, are able to stand in line for a long time, able to travel to a polling booth. Uh, Those living uh, in poverty have much greater difficulty doing that. And so they are effectively excluded from really participating in the political system.
0: And how many politicians go to areas where they know absolutely nobody is going (laughs) to (laughs) vote?
1: That's right, uh, you'd be a fool, wouldn't you? Um, and that is exactly what happens. Um, so you just, uh, as, a, uh, as someone aspiring to election, you just write off the areas where poor people live. Even if you're a Democrat, you assume that they're not going to be able to vote and uh, they won't help you. And that in turn means that the policies that you're putting forward are not going to be designed or aimed at them. Uh, but rather at the middle classes who you assume will be prepared to get out and vote and able to.
0: Now, you comment that the people that you met that most vociferously champion state rights against federal encroachment are also ironically those that most vociferously argue against greater municipal rights. And so I'm really intrigued for you to elaborate on this and how this may contribute to poverty in the United States.
1: Well, you've got a big, um, I think one of the um, major techniques used on the conservative side of politics is to insist on um, decentralization and on returning power to the states. And that applies particularly in relation to various welfare programs in terms of Medicaid and various other government benefits. You say, no, no, the states must uh, make their own decisions here. But what we've seen in quite a few places is where individual cities uh, try to adopt more progressive policy, uh, the state houses crack down. So the people who are busily trying to accumulate more power from the federal government are not doing it because they believe in a more decentralized, more democratic system, but because they simply want to be in control. Uh, And this uh, I found to be rather ironic. Uh, I think if you were genuinely committed to local democracy, to what various politicians and others told me is the laboratory of experimentalism and so on, uh, you would actually encourage um, these different uh, policy initiatives at the local level, many of which are, of course, uh, much more progressive because it's easier to be oppressive from a big distance um, but not when you are dealing with your own community.
0: Mm. And you can be held to account much more. And also, there's the empathy factor of somebody's right in front of you. Yeah. And also, more effective policies because they know exactly what's happening on the ground. So, I'd like now to move to the situation of Puerto Rico. You spend two out of nine days there. How has the colonization of Puerto Rico and the denial of political rights there contributed to Puerto Rico's poverty?
1: Well, there couldn't be a more um, dramatic uh, effect really um, than the combination of factors that are currently at play. Uh, You've got um, contestation about what its constitutional status should be, but right now it's nowhere. Um, It's has one representative in Congress who doesn't have a vote. It has its own government, state a state like government, but that government has effectively been taken over or trumped by a body appointed by the Congress, um, which is now basically empowered to take it, it's called the um, oversight the Fiscal Oversight Board, Fiscal Oversight and Management Board um, and it's basically empowered to take many of the key decisions that are crucial to government and this was done on the basis that the Puerto Ricans had mishandled their own finances, uh, that they are effectively bankrupt and therefore what we need to do is to, Uh, override their democracy essentially Um, and the result uh, really bizarrely is then that Congress doesn't give a damn about the interests of Puerto Rico when it's legislating and so in the big tax uh, bill uh, Puerto Rico was made much worse off uh, than it had been previously uh, because there was no one to do any bargaining with uh, representatives of Puerto Rico. They didn't have any votes to offer. Uh, So they are really in a no-man's land uh, of uh, not having constitutional representation and not being able to manage their own affairs.
0: Taxation without representation?
1: Uh, Yes, I'd say so.
0: So essentially the United States is doing to Puerto Rico what King George had done to uh, the colonies.
1: (laughs) Yes, Um, And it really is a, uh, it's one of those terrible situations where no one in Congress has an an incentive to resolve it, Uh, and so the colonial uh, status is maintained. But it's certainly not consistent with the sort of policies that the United States has long stood for internationally vis-a-vis other colonial dependencies.
0: Right. So Puerto Rico should essentially be part of the UN Decolonization Committee,
1: well, I think it would be uh, it's one of the things that local politicians want. I think for a long time it probably wasn't justified because uh, you didn't have the very recent decisions of the Supreme Court, which made absolutely clear the sort of status that i 've described. Uh, but I think now having a public uh, discussion of the situation in the context of colonization would be rather therapeutic.
0: Mm. I agree. I want to move now to the indigenous communities, and I'd like to preface this by um, informing our audience that might not know this, that the uh, Genocide Convention explicitly did not include cultural genocide because of the adamant rejection uh, by the United States. And part of this rejection was that the U.S. uh, has perpetuated cultural genocide uh, against its indigenous communities. And with that preface, I want to now talk about the poverty of Indigenous communities in the U.S. And specifically your comment that um, the representatives of non-recognized tribes informed you that federal recognition was the first step in addressing their poverty. Now, if you could elaborate on that and uh, the general condition of poverty in Indigenous communities in the United States.
1: Sure. Um... If, the, if this had been a different situation, I would have um, made a very careful point of going to visit uh, some of the uh, indigenous communities uh, in the US. But um, there is a UN special rapporteur dealing specifically with indigenous rights, and she visited the United States just a year or so ago. And so I felt that it was not appropriate for me to devote... Uh, too much of my time to going over that ground, but having said that, uh, if the focus is on extreme poverty, uh, the American Indian and Alaska Native peoples are certainly um, extremely badly off. They've got the highest uh, poverty group, uh, poverty rate rather, something like 26%. Uh, live in poverty, which is uh, extraordinarily high, almost double that of the population as a whole. Uh, They have very high unemployment rates, close to 12%. Um, One in four Indigenous youths are neither in school nor are they working. Um, The situation is grim. Um, About half of the uh, tribes have got formal uh, federal government recognition which then gives them various rights and gives them economic uh, opportunities to make them better off and i met with representatives who emphasized that uh, the the tribes that don't have that recognition are particularly badly off and so they really should be given the status that the others have
0: in order to get the government benefits from the recognition. Right. To what extent do gender and race intersect with poverty?
1: I think that the correlations are very strong. Uh, There's no doubt that women um, are more likely to be poor. Uh, There's no doubt that the poverty rates among the African-American population are significantly higher than for the white population. So there's no question that there's a very strong overlap and that these factors just exacerbate both the incidence and the experience of poverty.
0: But when you discuss the numbers, the majority of the impoverished were white.
1: Yes, that's true. Uh, So it's difficult for people to get their head around those two statistics. Um, There are eight or nine million more white people than um, Hispanics and African-Americans who are in poverty. So the main group are indeed uh, white people. But uh, by the same token, black people as a percentage of the population are themselves considerably worse off than white people and so this leads to a political uh, dilemma which is that a lot of the anti-welfare rhetoric has significant uh, racist overtones or undertones in the sense that if you look at media representations and so on of poverty you'll see a black face uh, if you listen to politicians, they the stereotype that they're talking about, whether they identify it or not, will often be a black family. Um, and so what you get is uh, an appeal to white racism saying, we're not going to let these disgusting blacks live off the um, hard work of the rest of the community and therefore we're going to cut welfare. But the truth is that that uh, actually ends up having a bigger impact on the white population because they're numerically uh, more exposed to it.
0: The racial divide has been a way to divide and conquer it by uh, the powerful elite.
1: Yes, it's just the, the irony here, of course, is that the, uh, the group that falls for the propaganda is then the one that pays for mm. it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well... We've already talked about the effective disenfranchisement of some of the extremely poor, but some people vote and they vote consistently against their interests. And we can discuss at length as to why that is and whether they've internalized this ideological hegemony that the rich are industrious and the trickle down system, even though it's proven to be ineffective. I'd like to move to a topic that you noted in your report, and that's the supposedly neutral algorithms that are just perpetuating uh, discrimination and poverty. And, We did an entire podcast on this earlier with respect to predictive policing, but you noted it with respect to the issue of homelessness. If you could please elaborate on how this new machine learning and algorithmic systems could impact uh, privacy and perpetuate poverty.
1: Well, in uh, LA, San Francisco, and uh, some other places around the country, Uh, They now have what they call coordinated entry systems uh, which seek to um, match the homeless people uh, with the supply of um, housing that is available. Now, in order for a homeless person to get into this system, they have to provide a huge amount of detailed information and in fact, what you're getting uh, is collection of a lot of very intimate uh, information about uh, people's, uh, how they live, what they're doing, who they're doing it with, uh, all recorded into a single database. And at one level, this, you know, I'm, I'm sure that the proponents of this scheme are doing it with the best of intentions. Uh, but we are setting up a database which has unparalleled amounts of intimate information in it. And while in some places, the LA, for example, I was assured that the police don't currently have access, although the police told me that they are trying to get access to it. If they do, then I think the whole notion of privacy, at least for homeless people, is going to be completely dead Uh, and so what you'll get is something that we see in other areas as well. Uh, Welfare pregnant uh, women who are seeking welfare are subjected to this sort of invasion of privacy uh, having to declare when they're having sex who with and all sorts of other details uh, because the welfare authorities want to make sure they are completely on top of the situation and I think that's all so happening in the homeless area with this coordinate entry system. And what I'd like to see is a much greater awareness of the risks of building up uh, those databases and the need to protect and perhaps limit the information that goes into them.
0: Mm. Now, I'd like to move to discuss American exceptionalism, which you note continues to still be rife. The U.S. has championed itself as the arsenal of democracy, yet the U.S. has never truly been democratic. Really, all the U.S. did was uh, replace the French Revolution's commitment to life, liberty, and the pursuit of property with the latter being replaced with this euphemism of happiness. And if anyone really (laughs) wants to see the true Republican leanings and not democratic leanings of the American Revolution, I find it instructive for them to read James Madison's Federal's paper number 10 when he astutely noted that factionalism would divide the economic interests of the majority whom otherwise would have a common rage for the equal division of property. Now I find also that this U.S. obsession with limited government is also quite hypocritical because as you correctly note in your report we have the highest incarceration rate in the entire world. Now, find this interpolation of American exceptionalism to provide ideological support for, ironically, old world policies so that the old world now has uh, a stronger safety net and greater social mobility than America?
1: Well, uh, I mean, I think it's true that one can trace an awful lot back to the uh, terms of uh, America's separation from the British uh, in terms of a an enduring suspicion of government, um, a an emphasis on individualism, uh, on what we now see as aspects of libertarianism and so on, whereas um, in Europe uh, the revolution, for example in France, led to the opposite conclusion, in other words, that they indeed needed to shrug off the uh, rule of the king, the aristocracy, the clergy and so on, but they needed to replace it with a government that or a state uh, that would indeed provide the essential necessities of life for all of its citizens. So you have a very different sort of government contract uh, than the one that came out in the United States. Um, but I think what's odd about the current Situation and what you describe is that the myth, I suppose, is the word of uh, govern of small government uh, is really applied uh, with religious fervor to areas like welfare and medical care and so on, but absolutely doesn't apply uh, when it comes to running the economy when it comes to making sure that the path is smoothed over for the interests of capital. uh, And when it comes to um, regulating the system in such a way that the wealthy get much more out of government spending than do the poor. So it's not that the United States has in fact opted for very small government uh, that doesn't intervene in the economy. It's just that it's opted for a very particular type of interventionist government, uh, which neglects the worst off in the society and panders to the best off.
0: Hmm. If you compare welfare fraud to tax fraud, so snap traffic is when you swap your EBT card that was just meant for food to have necessities, you can go to jail for 25 years. If you steal $50 million from the government purse, you go to jail for five years for tax fraud, but if you are compelled to, and and by the way, they lose maybe 50% on this black market of their spending power on food and stuff so they can buy something that they need, so it's another crime of compulsion, they go to jail for 25 years. How can the United States at all support these policies?
1: Yes, I think uh, even more uh, – I mean, I accept what you say in terms of the great uh, disparities uh, in punishments and so on and that the unjustifiable nature of those. But even more significant is that politicians spend a lot of time and government departments spend a lot of uh, real hours trying to expose welfare fraud – Uh, which is considered to be a particularly heinous offence and a good reason for cutting back on welfare and so on, while at the same time the Congress for the past few years has been systematically cutting down the staffing of the IRS and making it much more difficult for them to identify tax fraud uh, and tax evasion. Um, So you've got radically different standards being applied despite the fact that the stakes... Uh, are relatively small in the welfare area and relatively large in the tax evasion area.
0: Now, the U.S. has never recognised economic and social rights. It's never ratified the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. And one might say, what's the point of any right if you don't have breakfast? But your report is a scathing critique of how the United States Fails to provide civil and political rights to its impoverished polity. Uh, to what extent is the distinction between economic and social rights on the one hand and civil and political rights um, conceptually flawed? And how has this ideological distinction pervaded and impeded the U.S. rights regime?
1: Well, it's a long story, and yeah. I'll spare you the. Uh, I'll spare you too many details, uh, but it's interesting that uh, the. Um, when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted in 1948 by the UN, uh, under the chairpersonship of Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, both types of rights were included in the declaration and uh, said to have equal standing. This reflected the combination of the US Bill of Rights, which we know well, and the proposed second Bill of Rights that Franklin Delano Roosevelt had suggested during World War II, which were economic and social rights. Um, once the Cold War, um, cast a huge shadow over the whole enterprise, um, that recognition that the two sets of rights were intimately linked to one another, uh, Roosevelt's statement that a necessitous man cannot be a free man, for example, was thrown by the wayside and you've had, uh, single-minded emphasis on the part of the United States, at least at the international level, on civil and political rights and consistent opposition to economic, social and cultural rights, which are supported by virtually every other country in the world. Um, But what I found in the United States, I decided that there was no point in going over the old arguments about why the U.S. should recognize a right to health care or a right to an adequate standard of living. Uh, The reality is that for the time being, it doesn't. Uh, But what it does do is to see itself as a great champion of more traditional civil and political rights. And so I assessed the extent to which people who are living in poverty or very close to it are really able to exercise those rights. And of course, what I found is that the rights are severely jeopardized uh, by the failure to address the broader issues of poverty. And one can do that without uh, acknowledging that um, there are rights to healthcare and rights to an adequate standard of living, but simply saying we're committed to civil and political rights. And if they're going to be exercised by people, they will need certain forms of government support.
0: Right. So. Essentially, we need uh, to switch the paradigm to a positive rights regime, because it seems that currently the US rights regime conceives of liberty as espoused by Jeremy Bentham and Asaya Boleyn, this very negative conception of liberty being merely the freedom from government restraint, when restraint can even be more forceful by private actors, and obviously the delineation between private and public is uh, delineation made by the public rights regime in the first place. So is there a need to move to a positive rights discourse whereby capacity to effectuate rights is justiciable in order for everyone to enjoy their rights?
1: Well, I wouldn't immediately make the justiciable move, but that's, in other words, to put courts in charge of making the decisions, but that's certainly an option. I think uh, one of the really interesting paradoxes in the United States is the insistence that um, there is there is an obligation on the part of states which is recognized in almost every state constitution to provide uh, adequate education for its citizens um and there's been a lot of litigation at the state level uh, often very successfully to uphold this so-called right to education but when it was uh, challenged in the u.s supreme court Uh, Some 40 years ago or so in the Rodriguez uh, v. San Antonio case, um, the Supreme Court took a very interesting position, which was to say, well, we can't really discern a constitutionally recognized right to education. And a number of the judges basically said, oh, my God, you know, if we did the next thing, they'd be asking us for a right to housing or a right to health care. So what they had to do was to essentially overlook the fact that the U.S. in reality treats education as a matter of right uh, and that anyone who's denied it, that's an outrage and they can go to court and they can enforce their right. Uh, But we still see Americans drawing this big distinction and saying, no, no, the right to education is completely different from the right of access to health care. Uh, education is not seen as a sort of socialist uh, inroad. Uh, it's seen as an essential part of citizenship. But the same applies to healthcare. You can't be an effective citizen if you're sick and you have no assistance.
0: And, of course, it's hard for you to go to school if you don't have um, a home.
1: <laughs> right. Right,
0: exactly. Now, your report excoriates the U.S. for entrenched inequality and hypocrisy, and there's so much to discuss, but I know you have limited time, so I want to end on the positive because, you know, if we're apathetic, if we just have a pessimistic view, then nothing can be changed. Well, (laughs) we've given up and nothing will be changed. But I note in your report that despite the entire Stygian scheme, there was a lot of positive that you saw. Now, what were the most positive community and even government programs that you were presented with or that you saw during your travel? And what primary common elements did you perceive that they share?
1: Well, uh, I mean, there are still um, important remnants of an earlier era in terms of federal legislation. So the big fights Um, recently were over the child health insurance program um, and a number of other benefits that are available for people with disabilities and so on. Uh, Those programs remain pretty much intact despite uh, proposals uh, in the Trump administration budget to slash them, Uh, and they play an extremely important role. Uh, One of the things that I think was most encouraging was the extent to which you've got a whole range. You've got a very vibrant civil society in the United States. And often that civil society is not only advocating for uh, more progressive policies, but is actually carrying them out. Um, I remember being very touched by visiting a church uh, in San Francisco where the Um, homeless people are allowed in during the day and basically they sleep on the, on the benches, on the pews, uh, in between masses. They have to sit up or get out when mass is celebrated, uh, and they're kicked out at night, uh, because the church is not a, uh, a hotel as it were, uh, but it's all carefully run by volunteers. There are formerly homeless people who are making sure that people behave themselves and uh, that it's all uh, clean and neat. Uh, and that was a very touching use of um, the uh, riches of a, of a large church in the city. Um, similarly, uh, although there's a, a negative side to this, uh, I saw in a place like um, West Virginia, a very impressive uh, health rights initiative Uh, which had mobile dentistry um, booths, uh, which provided even psychiatric care for tens of thousands of people each year, uh, always filling in for gaps in government services. And that was extremely impressive because all of the staff were volunteers from the local medical community and so on. The only downside of it is, of course, it takes the pressure off government Uh, and it makes it possible for governments to continue to wash their hands, to abdicate responsibility for providing these basic services. Uh, But since that's not happening and not likely to happen soon, uh, the volunteer efforts were quite extraordinary and very impressive.
0: Hmm. Well, thank you very much, Philip, for your time today. And I look forward to your final report, which you will be presenting to the Human Rights Council in Geneva in June.
1: Good. Thanks, Alexandra. Great pleasure talking to you.
0: I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.